and welcome to the In Her Shoes podcast, which uncovers the journey and life of women in science. My name is Yana Mwangi, and in today's episode, I will try to put you in the shoes of a real role model, Anna Lena Schall Gizeker, who is an initial female coordinator of EU-funded project Poseidon, from which this podcast is supported. She will give you a different perspectives of male-dominated nanotechnology sector and advice for decent representations of female in science. Be sure to listen all the way through for the details. I want to thank you for joining this podcast. This podcast uncover a journey in life of a women in science. And at the beginning, I'm curious, you know, I was very happy that you said yes. And I would like to know what made you decide that, okay, I will go for it. And I will try to make this podcast. I was quite happy that you asked for this topic, especially because from my perspective, I see that there is not much visibility of being a scientist and being a woman yet. So that's not everywhere. It is very obvious that there are women working in science, that there is a possibility to continue work in science and also to have a perspective of people working in the field for a very long time and, and still are happy with it. So for me, some role models during my studies or afterwards were missing. So that's really one of the reasons I wanted to be visible for this. Thank you for this. And it's open also questions for me to going back to your childhood and that decision that makes you to become a scientist. So. Was there somebody, on the contrary, when you did not have this role modeling, who inspired you or how did all this started for you? So like I said in the beginning, I'm quite curious all along the way. And I also think that children in general are natural born scientists anyway. So in my childhood, I was quite happy about digging holes in the garden quite to the annoyance of my parents. And I also never stopped asking questions about how everything interacts with each other. But from my seven-year-old self, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. Then when I got a little older, I got interested in the stars. We lived in an area where it was quite dark during the night, so it was possible to see a lot of stars. So I always started to ask questions about the universe and how everything interacts. And then I got a book from my parents, which I asked them to send me. <laughs> and that's a book. It's called um, Uncle Albert and his travels through space and time. And it's a novel about an uncle, which is basically Albert Einstein, who was showing his nephew everything about the universe. And things I really liked about this, which is how light travels through the universe and how light behaves when it is sent from a rocket. And I really enjoyed it. And actually, what I now also realize is what is not that often also in science books and books, which I read during my study, that there is a, a female protagonist in the story, this niece uh, of Albert uh, experience 
space and time. And yeah, maybe it's something which then helped me not to get so biased as everyone else or almost everyone else from my friends. So I, I really wanted to understand relativity. So I learned calculus uh, during the summer break and I learned some, some books from the library or lectures on, on physics, uh, quite uh, famous books from uh, Richard Feynman. And that's how everything somehow started. So basically books were the first stop for you. Uh, previously, you were mentioning that you were always choosing Edmunds book, like the H. Edmunds books. Mm -hmm. And now you also found the book from your childhood. That is amazing. <laughs> I'm sure that you will find a use of that for your children. What was the role of your parents? Were they supporting you in this journey? I was curious myself getting library license and also found the books which were of interest to me. And my parents were in this way very supportive that they, I think, were quite happy that I stopped digging holes in the garden and <laughs> ran more. But they also let me experiment with some things. So um, I found an old telephone in the attic which has this uh, rotary dial And I dismantled the telephone and wanted to get to know how the things work, like the, the microphone and also the speaker. You, you see really the components in these telephones still. And you see that there is a magnet. And I got curious how the interaction between magnet and membrane and uh, how sound came out of this. So yeah, that's how my experimental life then started. So did your parents have answer for your questions? No, they were not in science and they also didn't go to university, but they always encouraged me to follow my dreams. And I think that's something which really helped me a lot. Without the female Fika to look up to in her early professional life and surprisingly no parents with a university degree to inspire her or to be pushed by, Anna was instead guided by her own curiosity. Anna obtained a diploma from the Institute of Quantum Optics and her doctoral degree in physics, both from prestigious German universities. After my diploma degree, I wanted to do really, let's say, basic or fundamental research on the interaction of laser beams and material. And what was very special about the place where I went there was there was the most uh, powerful university laser at that time in, in Düsseldorf. And I applied there for a PhD position to study laser and plasma physics on a relativistic scale. So there not rockets or space shuttles moved at relativistic velocities, as in the book I just showed you, but we accelerated protons and electrons with a laser beam to these high velocities and, and studied the radiation which came out of this. Towards, I somehow changed the perspective. I said, okay, this was really nice to look deep down to the fundamentals, but I, at that time, really wanted to do something more applied, but still be in science. So I applied for a job in Aachen, which was advertised as someone who knows about building setups for optoelectronic measurements of photonic integrated circuits. So at that time, I had no idea really what a photonic integrated circuit was, because it was not during the curriculum and the studies at that time that it was included there. 
but I could make use of so many techniques I've learned with this high power lasers then to bring the light on the chip, on the microchip. And that was a really good place in Aachen where, where I went there because it was um, a research institute which enabled us to continue research, not on the most fundamental level, but on an applied level to get in touch with industry and to do something which might be useful for industry as well. There was the time after the PhD and after the work in Aachen, you switched your career, let's say, fundamentally. Can you tell us about that more? There's a annual talk with your supervisor and the supervisor for me in Aachen was the head of the institute was also a professor um, at the university in Aachen. And he said, well, you've been now group leader for uh, eight years. And if you want to continue your career, you should really apply for a professorship. And at that time, I was really surprised in this way that I, okay, for me, it was always clear that I wanted to stay in research, but I I was not really, it was not my, my goal now, now to move a, big step because it's very unlikely if you apply for a professorship that it's really possible that you get into this academic system back again or even stay in the academic system after PhD time. And then just two months later, yeah, I got to know about the position which was advertised about the professorship in Duisburg, which has had a very interesting perspective for me because it was possible to have their technology, which is in the Fraunhofer Institute, and also the academic position at the university at the same time. And to have this great technology opportunities was really something that I said, okay, it's so close by, it's really matching my profile. So anyway, I have nothing to lose. I apply for this job and yeah, it worked out. Okay. If you want to uh, move the next career step, you just should do this. So that's, that's really what, what a mentor should do. Like, yeah, encourage someone to move forward, even though might be not the best for him, but to really make the involvement possible. Who was that person who was really always there and helping you to navigate you in the directions? There was no mentoring program for me there at the time, or maybe I just missed it, but they were always my parents who supported me and this was helping me a lot. At some point I was asking myself, okay, how, how is it possible to make the next step? And there were times where there was just no one who I could ask about this, like how to become a professor. Okay. I, I had a, a professor friend in Aachen who I could ask about how do I write such an application for professorship. It's not like a normal application. It's like a, a 50 page, <laughs> like not only resume, but you have to plan your research. You have to make a plan for, for teaching and everything. So it's not something you learn in, in a course or something. Yeah, it's something you learn by doing or by having a good mentor. Anna is well-known woman in her field who took on leadership roles quite in early stage of her career is the mother of two, a professor of semiconductor technology at the University of Duesenberg, Essen, and a group leader at the Fraunhofer Institute for Microelectronic Circuits and Systems. 
Is it like the double appointment that you have right now manageable with two children, being a mom, being a wife? Is there a support system? First of all, there's more possible of what one usually thinks what is possible. So that's, I think, a very, very general thing. And also, yeah, having a family and having two children, that's not not a one person job and that's not only the the job of the mom so it's about choosing the partner wisely that there is a, a possibility of uh, having times for, for child care for for each of the parents because it's very nice for, for the children as well and both can stay in work and of course it needs a lot of organization in behind that there's always someone available for the children, but it really helps if both husband and wife partner is really on the same side with you and also encourage you to continue working or work on your own stuff, look for the children, then later do some shift work. That's also something we did. One was working in the morning, the other one was working in the afternoon and worked out pretty well so far. Of course, our parents also support us if there's no possibility or if we have to go on, on travel for, for longer days, then it's helpful to have a, a whole system behind this. So sometimes it's very important for us to recognize this, to normalize it, that we need support. It's not just us. and. Finding a husband wisely, it's your advice too. <laughs> Great. Going back or looking at your story that you mentioned, you became a leader or took a um, leadership position quite soon. Was it something that you had to learn also? Or do you think you are the natural leader that could take this position or role very easily? I think that's an interesting question, which... Maybe I'm not the only one who could answer this or not the best one who could answer this. So I didn't feel uncomfortable with being a leader that young, even though the people in my group, when I, I took over the group lead, some of them were almost 20 years older than me, which was some kind of awkward first time I thought about this. But then it became very naturally because um, it's also about how you understand leadership not about saying you have to do this and that, but about taking things together, having a vision, how to move forward, and then yeah, talk with everyone what could be the next steps and what also are individual goals which contribute to the main goal of the group. So all in all, even though I was still young, I I didn't feel strange being a leader. Sometimes it felt uh, strange outside the world uh, of our institute, because when I moved to, to meetings where they're the leaders uh, of uh, photonic groups or photonic departments from other companies, I was always the youngest and I was always the only female one. So there were um, 200 gray-haired uh, men in the room and I was the only woman not serving coffee there. So that was kind of strange, yeah. Did you realize it that at that time? Or was it kind of like a natural that you just belonged there and uh, that's it? You were not digging deeper like, yeah, I'm, I'm the only woman in the room. 
I mean, for me, before I went there or when I arrived there was fine. And I also only realized how this whole situation was that there were so many men and uh, until one of the people who organized uh, this kind of workshop said, ah, welcome sirs to this afternoon session. And I said, well, that's really, really, really discriminating. He even didn't take into perspective that there will be not only men around. So that's uh, happened quite often, but there are some changes that we can see. Can you think of any other examples that you really realized that or maybe bad or good examples that happened to you throughout your career that really significantly showed you that really the women are not sufficiently represented in, in the fields of science in nanotechnology? Yeah, I think that event I just talked about was one of the most obvious. But apart from this, is that questions which employers ask, like, how do you handle childcare for your kid? And what does your kid do in the afternoon? Hey, suppose that no male applicant ever has ever been asked this question. You initiated Poseidon Project. There are still very minority um, representations of females. So how do you see it and what to do with that? And what do you do? to close this uh, disparity. Normally, if there would be two candidates and the one is male and one is female, you're supposed to choose uh, the female one if they have the same background or the same abilities. But it's not the case that this situation ever happened to me because either there is no female applicant at all or there is one which is standing out and then it's easy. But normally the situation is that there is no female applicant for a job. And I also ask some of my, my students and also students who then decided, so female students who decided not to go for a PhD after studying and said, well, it's too unsure whether I, I can stay in science and why should I do a PhD now if I can move to industry now and earn more money now and then I will be younger with having a permanent job. And I would say that it's not everything about a job in industry is as permanent as one would think, even though it's written permanent contract. Companies can be bought by other companies and uh, departments can be closed and to stay in science at least for a few years and decide where to go then, it's still possible. And it's something which if someone likes science should really consider as well and also have more perspective than only, okay, I need a permanent job at the age of 30. So it's not, not really necessary to, to have this, to continue life and find more ways of life than just like a very, very standard way. So by saying that one might think that people or women looking for very stable or well-established positions where they can plan other things. Mm -hmm. But one of the examples that we can give is that when you started new position, you postpone it a bit more because at that time you were expecting a second child. Mm -hmm. But you can tell us about it that you explore different directions and when something came, you just figure it out on the way, what will be the next step. And maybe this is something that our younger generation or females sometimes afraid to do so. 
and you are advising them that they can be more flexible in their decisions or explore what they love to do and go for it, right? Exactly. Yes, because I think for many it's really difficult because there's no visibility of a female scientist in higher positions. So mm. this is really rare. And also for, for females who have as well a family at the same time. So there's a career woman. I think there's a role model for this, but really this uh, having perspective of both the family and, and the kids and, and the science as well, that's that's really not not existent in terms of visibility. And that's a problem. What, what is not visible is not, not possible for someone, or at least in, in the mind. <laughs> and when I got the, the call from the university for the professorship, yeah, it was also a very strange situation for me because yeah, I was seven months pregnant at that time. Said, well, okay, now it took you almost one year from the application, or it was around one year after the application until this letter. And I said, well, okay, I cannot join next month or <laughs> in two months. Of course, the, the child first has to be born and then, okay, cannot start on the very first day. So I then decided to go for a little postponement of, of six months, but in the end, it was not such a big problem for, for them. Okay, they, they needed someone to give the lecture. That's why I, I had to start, or at least I feel some of uh, the pressure to start that early after uh, the birth of my, my second child. But at the same time, I also had to manage all these, these expectations, yeah, or what, and this is, this is also something which just happens in our minds. Yeah? So people think everyone expects you to go on a part-time job after having children at the woman to go on a part-time job. But that's not the only way to go. Yeah, both can reduce the hours a bit, the, the mom and the dad, and then everyone co can continue what he loves to do and what she loves to do and be there for the child as well. So be more open-minded of different perspectives and it's not so much about what other things, how many hours you should work or you shouldn't work. Uh, it's what's good for you and what's good for your family. Now I would like to go to Poseidon Project. This podcast is also uh, supported by this project. So I want to discuss more about this too. So you were the coordinator from the beginning of the project. How do you recall this journey? One of my ideas was that we at the research institute where I worked take over the coordination because from the EU perspective, this research institute is also considered as an SME. So it has more of an industrial perspective. So bringing things to, to industry, taking things up from fundamental research towards industry. And even though Poseidon is much about really fundamental science, it also has to have a perspective tool bringing it to make something useful out of the results in the end. So I think this perspective change from only we have my science to we have really excellent science and we have an idea how to bring it into the market or at least to make it interesting for industry. That was something I really focused on with this resubmission of the proposal. Also, I think in the end, it helped us to be successful in the next round and was 
pretty happy to be on board there with a with a coordination of such a really interdisciplinary research topic. So what were the main objectives that you helped and that you started with? Yeah, so there was these different groups with really fascinating fundamental research uh, based on, on the chemistry, based on new colloids. And our institute was into making chips also for, for telecommunications um, beforehand. And we wanted to bring really light on the chip and taking all these different technologies together, like the colloids and uh, some some people working with, with quantum dots and bringing all together to have a functional uh, system working. And yeah, really to talk about what in the end do all the interfaces need in order to make something useful, but still explore the different worlds of these different research fields at the same time. Speaking for EU project, I think a successful EU project always starts with a consortium. If you have an excellent consortium, okay, it may matter what you write, but it does not matter that much. So the people who are there sitting at the table and want to do research together, this really matters. And this also makes uh, the project then and the, the project meetings an exciting time. I definitely agree. And that's what we also do in Amherst. We are putting together a consortium and trying to help with innovation. So that's something also that we can really contribute to. If you ask to give the advice to the young generation and female scientists, what advice would you give them? Staying curious. That's one thing. Also, lifelong uh, continuous learning. So you never, you're never there with what you learned. Yeah. You're, you're always kind of new project, get into a new group, different people, different science. So never stop learning both on the science part and also on the, on the personal development as well. Think outside the box and sometimes also think about moving out of your comfort zone as well. When you close your eyes, how do you imagine a scientist? Oh, a scientist is someone who likes to think really hardly on things in order to get a deep understanding. And he uses, or she uses all her abilities yeah, from, from the mind, the intuition and the, the science, the mathematics as well. Despite the effect of gender discrimination, her joy for her scientific career has not been diminished. She continues to pursue her dream. I hope you were inspired and enjoyed our podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast was supported by the EU-funded project Poseidon. For more information, visit www.poseidon.eu. Poseidon-fat.eu